This is a podcast entitled What We Will Abide. I am a white supremacist, and here's why. Just yesterday, I was walking on Prince Street with my children. They're seven years old and four years old. There was a guy who was running next to us. He pulled up next to us on the street corner to wait for the light to change. Now, I noticed immediately what he was wearing because of how much he wasn't wearing. And, in fact, what he was wearing was pretty gaudy in that they were short, silky shorts in the decoration of the United States flag. He was well-built and young and white with straight blonde hair. And, of course, I noticed that because he was attractive and had a body that, in fact, I kind of envied in that moment. Anyway, he ran across the street, and um, I began to walk across the street with my children, and I heard a voice behind me say, Don't let your kids see that. And it was spoken, the sentence was spoken with real derision. Don't let your kids look at that. And I looked over to my right, over my right shoulder, and there was a cab driver, a portly, unshaven, unkempt, balding white guy who leaned out of the driver's side window to repeat it and then shake his head in disgust. Now, I had a moment, a split second really, to reflect on what my reaction would be. Uh, And I made a choice. I chose to laugh. I chose to laugh with him. And he, in turn, laughed right along with me. And in fact, I got a little bit of pleasure out of that the sort of shared knowledge of something with a stranger, uh, a joke that you both can share in in a moment. And there was camaraderie there. There was this weird kind of closeness there with someone that I've never met before and would probably never see again. But the question that I had to ask myself immediately afterward was, what did I just sacrifice? Because I understood where the derision came from. And I understood where the disgust came from. And the humorous statement that he made, the humorous imperative, which was, don't let my children see that, was meant to deride the young man in that he was homosexual, I guess, was my thinking, and that he was effeminate, and that he was far too undressed, and that this disgusted this other man, and that he wanted to kind of share that disgust with me in a kind of like macho family man kind of way. Don't let your kids look at that. Now, again, upon walking away after laughing, my children asked me why I was laughing, and I didn't tell them. And I thought to myself about, again, what I'd sacrificed in that moment. I'd sacrificed an opportunity to say something 
although I didn't really have much time, to try and, I guess, teach that cab driver a lesson. Why shouldn't I let my kids look at that? What's wrong with looking at a human body? Especially one that is in pretty good shape, better than you, you disgusting fatso. Well, that would have been kind of my own prejudices on display there. I could have said something along the lines of, what do you mean, don't let my children look at that? What's wrong with looking at that? And I realized that what I did in that moment was exercise my white supremacy. I was laughing right along with that guy and his bigotry when I should have or could have done something else. I had a choice. I chose not to be an activist. I chose not to be a teacher. I chose not to take a moment where I could have done something um, productive. I certainly would have gotten a negative reaction from the cab driver had I said something to him, even though there wasn't much time. And there wouldn't have been that short-lived moment of brotherhood, I suppose. I would have sacrificed that. And really, what could I have taught him in a few seconds that I had to turn around and say something along the lines of, what are you talking about, you jerk? What could I have taught him? And would he really have learned anything? And wouldn't it just have been a moment, another moment of animosity between two people when it could have been, in fact was, a moment of camaraderie? But I chickened out. I gave up an opportunity to at least try. Because in the end, I think that activism is trying in the face of rejection, in the face of complete and total ignorance, in the face of the status quo. That's what activism is. And there are people who are forced to face that by nature of the color of their skin or the lifestyle that they lead or their religion or ethnicity every single day of the year. I don't have to do that. What sacrifice would it really have been had I said something, even without the hope of teaching something to him in that moment? Hence, white supremacy, having the choice and taking the easier route, not doing anything, not speaking truth to power, not saying, hey, your white supremacist agenda, whether you're aware of it or not, doesn't fly with me. I'm not going to condone it. In fact, I'm going to fight back against it. I didn't do that. And I've been thinking a lot about all the ways in which I haven't done that in my life. Mostly because I've been entirely unaware of my white supremacy or white privilege. Privilege because of my economic advantage, privilege because of the color of my skin, privilege because those two things enabled me to get a certain kind of education, live in a certain kind of neighborhood and be free of lots of different kinds of pressures that a lot of other people have. That kind of upbringing, deliberately or not, and I'm not out to blame anyone here, parents, teachers, or otherwise, but that kind of upbringing has certainly certainly set me up for a a, a specific kind of worldview, which I've maintained for a long, long time without ever questioning it, without ever thinking about well, maybe the things that I think and the reactions that I have and the fear that I have of certain kinds of people, of certain kinds of situations, is actually either unfounded or founded upon 
a foundation or a basis of racism. If, you know, we're going to give a name to it. I never thought about that until very, very recently. And one of the motivations for thinking differently of late has been the Black Lives Matter movement, which I was introduced to actually by my wife, who, after the Ferguson shootings, shooting, and the Ferguson uproar two years ago, went to a vigilant event here in Lancaster City. And since then, I've been introduced to a lot of people who are espousing ideas that make a whole lot of sense to me intellectually. But I realize that, in a lot of ways, I've been perpetrating exactly the kind of white supremacy that they are fighting against. Here's another example of what I mean. Another personal example of what I mean. And then, I guess I'll get even more personal. So, I'm teaching this writing, or, yeah, I'm teaching this writing in action and activism class at TBA. And one of the sessions was on Black Lives Matter. And the genre of activism was protest. Live, on the spot, with your body, with your voice, speaking truth to power, stepping into the abyss, protest. And one of the protests I showed um, was a Bernie Sanders rally way back last fall in Seattle, I believe, wherein um, the clip has two women who rush the stage or the podium where he's talking, and they say, you're going to let us talk or we're going to shut down this event. And they say it over and over and over, and they're very, very aggressive, and they're very much in your face. And his campaign manager kind of steps in front of him and tries to talk with them and keeps saying to them, be reasonable, be reasonable. And one of the women becomes irate, and she says, I'm not reasonable, I'm respectable. And the first time I saw this clip, I thought a couple of things. One, this is a not a good clip to show to my students. This is my thinking as I'm watching this. This is not a good clip to show to my students because it doesn't show Black Lives Matter in a good light. That's exactly what I thought. Why did I think that? I thought that because as I'm watching this, I'm thinking to myself, boy, they're, they're really attacking him and they're really being aggressive. And number one, here's a guy who, at least on the surface, has, has pledged to listen to their ideas, whereas no other political candidate has you know, most political candidates dismiss them out of hand. I showed them another clip of a woman who was protesting at a Hillary Clinton um, fundraising event and was turned out uh, unceremoniously. But I was thinking to myself, boy, they really could have done this a lot better. Why are they shouting so virulently? Um, this isn't the way to get your message across. And then, um, and then I stopped for a second and I began to reflect on why I thought that way. And it became instantly clear. I had put myself immediately in the shoes of Bernie Sanders and his white male campaign manager. And those shoes were shoes of fear. I was afraid those two women and their shouting made me scared. Even though I was sitting in the comfort of my own home watching a YouTube video, I still felt afraid. Afraid because, again, most importantly, I put myself immediately in the shoes of those who had the power, those who had the privilege, those who had the supremacy. And I began to think, well, let's put, let's put on the shoes of those women, the two black women who were so angry. 
The one woman specifically who was yelling, I'm not reasonable, I'm respectable. And the line of thinking that came to mind was this. In what part or what era of the 400-odd year history of black people in America have they ever had the opportunity to speak their minds in a way that it, that was accepted? I mean, very simply, if you start from the beginning, they weren't even people. If you're not a person, you don't have a voice to speak. And take it from there. And think about the simply what we all know about the history of black people in America. At what point should they ever have been expected to be reasonable? It makes perfect sense for that woman to have gotten so livid. It makes perfect sense for the response to be reasonable to be no. It doesn't matter if I try to be reasonable. In fact, my being reasonable has got me pretty much nowhere. And so I'd like you to respect me, which you've never done, which is why I'm so angry. And in fact, being saying be reasonable to me is disrespectful and it's patronizing. And so say, don't say be reasonable, respect me instead. I'm not a reasonable person. Why should I be reasonable? I have no reason to be reasonable given the way I have been treated. This is something that I have absolutely no concept of. I just don't. I am a man. I am white-skinned. I am privileged. And this is not some attempt at apologetics here. This is not some kind of reverse psychology here where it's where I'm trying to say, oh, woe is me. Woe is me for the privilege I was born with. You should, you should pity me. It's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is I am owning or attempting to own and be aware of my white supremacy. And it's, it's coming up in more and more acute ways of late. Let's face it, or I'm going to face it, and here's where I'm going to get really, really personal. For most of my life, I've been afraid of brown and black people. My reaction to them may not be overtly indicative of my fear, but I'm thinking about it all the time. When living in New York City, I had that fear, and I would avoid certain places and certain people and certain situations, as I was taught to do. But it actually goes deeper than that. It's an immediate reaction to a group of black or brown children who are behaving a certain way, who sound a certain way. Or if people aren't speaking English, for example, and they're speaking Spanish instead, I have vivid memories, and it's not so far in the past, of having an immediate reaction to that, which is, that is foreign, I don't like it. And then in my adulthood, as a standard garden variety liberal, I would think to myself, well, that's racist, because it is. And yet, those were the immediate thoughts that I had. And the immediate reaction was to get away from it. There was somehow something anathema about it. I was, and still very much am, the ivory tower lefty who stands above it all, 
reads all the literature, says all the right things, has the right bumper stickers, but doesn't want to get in the fray, doesn't want to be involved, doesn't want to associate on a personal level because I think of myself as better than. So this is something that I am trying to break myself of. And it's just about being in a moment and recognizing what feelings come up. And then having some thoughts that are corrective. Mostly those thoughts have to do with judgment, which I'm very, very good at. Most of the time, I just judge myself. But in other times, like the ones I described earlier, I'm judging the people that I am in a crowd with, on the street with, on a subway car with, or whatever it might be. Judging them and thinking that behavior is less than, the way that they're talking is less than, the language they're speaking is less than, whatever it might be. Those are real thoughts that I have had. And what I'm trying to do now is recognize those thoughts and say to myself, those are judgments. And the best thing to do would be, the, the, the most helpful thing to do and helpful thing to do would be to dispense with the judgment, to just observe and accept. This culture, me being a part of it, spend a lot of time, a lot of time, standing in judgment of things. That's the wrong way to be. That's the wrong way to dress. That's the wrong music to listen to. That's the wrong kind of car to drive. That's the wrong hairstyle. We are harsh judges of ourselves and harsh judges of others. At this point, the only person that I can change is me. The only mode of thinking that I can change is my own. I can't change that cab driver's mode of thinking. Nothing I could have said in that moment or for 10 whole hours would have changed his mind. So what I can do is I can notice and recognize the thoughts and feelings that come up for me and accept them and don't judge. And if I can be maybe even less of a harsh judge instead of no judge at all of myself, then perhaps I can let go of my harsh judgment of others. And if I can do that, then maybe I can poke a pretty significant hole in my white supremacy. In upcoming episodes of What We Will Abide, I'll be talking to two activists here in Lancaster who work in these arenas. One is Kevin Ressler, who is a frequent speaker at Black Lives Matter events in and around Lancaster City. And one is Nick Myron, who works at the YWCA. I look forward to sitting down with both of them and talking about matters of this nature. And then I look forward to bringing these conversations to you. Once again, thanks for listening. Original music is by Morning Stillness. The song is called Black Vulture. I am the black vulture, fill this form, find my place at last. I rise with thermals underneath the cold at my back. 
I can't.